Hey, welcome to episode number eight of Fall Downs Misfits and Warriors Addiction Stories. My name is Jay. Um, today I'm going to talk a bit about my son. Uh, when, when, when my son was four years old, uh, my wife and I put him into hockey. And um, I remember like he had never been on skates and they, uh, they put him out onto the ice or his first step on the ice and he fell down and he, and he couldn't get up. And I watched all these other kids, you know, like just step over him and skate around. And my son was laying there down, like trying to get up and he couldn't get up. And I'm in the stands and I'm like, I'm an emotional guy. I I start like, like almost, well, I'm tearing up. Like, like, why did I do this to my son? Why am I putting him here? And there's nothing I can do. And then I see the ref comes out and he picks him up and he brings him over to the bench. And so my son sits on the bench. This is his first day on skates and his first shift comes out and he walks out and 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 there he is and and he falls again and the whole shift he's like lays on the ice trying to get up and and i i'm i'm devastated like just absolutely devastated and uh um i wanted to even take him out out of hockey and uh, my son's 11 now so this is quite some time ago so i uh i remember um just after that uh, as the weeks went by, I would notice that um, the coach would help him up and help him get back on the bench. And then as the weeks progressed, I'd see the his his teammates um, help him up and, and, you know, like help him up and, and he'd skate his couple feet and fall down. And and uh, th- this would go on and on. And then as, as, a, as when you get to the end of the season, he could skate again like he, he wasn't the best and, and he'd fall down from time to time. But I try to put that in perspective into my into like recovery and um, like uh, I feel like my son a lot of times is being like a fall down like you fall down and you can't get up and I'm sure that the people who love you are like watching from the stands and they're crying because there's not like you're, they're helpless there's there's nothing they can do and I look at the, uh, the the coaches like kind of being your sponsor sponsor and teaching you on your way on how to do things and the teammates are your are like the fellowship. And then they're the ones you call and who help you when times are tough and that. And you might fall down, you continue to fall down. But you, you, as time goes, you learn how to get up again. And being on day 55, like, I'm standing again. And the only thing I, like, the ref I look at as someone's higher power, which I, I still have a problem with. I'm still looking for my ref. But um, hopefully one day I get there. And with that... That, that little story. I just want to introduce the amazing, lovely, wonderful Celeste H. Celeste Huntley. Hello, Celeste. Hello, Jay. Oh my God, I've missed that intro. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing just fine, actually. That's good. Mm-hmm. I know you. I know you're in school now. You're. I know, and today might have been a bit of a rough day for you. I know that as well. Yeah, today was a, well, school's going great. It's a little overwhelming, um, but this week, um, this coming week uh, is my reading week, so it couldn't come soon enough, actually. I think I just need some time to just kind of stop and regroup, um, but no, it's it's going really well, and I wrote a bunch of midterms. I'm, I haven't gotten any marks yet, but pretty sure I, I'm doing okay there, but yeah, today was, uh, today is a tough one. Today is uh four-year anniversary um of the loss of my husband my husband and uh my girl's dad um and uh yeah it was you know 
and realizing that it was it was uh, that date, I guess is uh, you know it's it's funny because it feels like four years. Like it it honestly feels like it was just yesterday. So I didn't think I'd be as um, as emotional and as reflective as as I I turned out to be today. But you know what? We had an amazing day. I spent um, a big chunk of my day with my oldest daughter today, doing some running around and doing some errands and. Tonight, we, um, the girls wanted to make their dad's favorite uh, meal for supper. Right. So we went to town and we bought um, steaks, meat, steak, Neptune, and had a really amazing supper with my parents, too. So we, uh, yeah, it was really good. So it was a, it was a good end to the day. And it's, it's, uh, it's 10 o'clock here in Nova Scotia right now. So the day is over. I'm kind of glad to have it behind me now. But, I mean, it's, you know, you celebrate a life. But at the same time, it's... Uh, you look back and and there is a lot of emotions, but I'll be happy that tomorrow's the twenty first. <laughs> One day at a time. One day at a time. Right. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, Celeste, I guess you can introduce our new guest. Yeah. I gotta give a shout out to Danny O, who was uh featured in our third podcast, who actually helped us find this lovely new guest who we know absolutely nothing about <laughs> nothing other than about. short little band. <laughs> uh, well, it's been a while, it's been a few weeks. And we've really wanted to have somebody on. So again, just like Jay said, we, we really don't know much about our, our next guest, but I had a few minutes to chat with her before the podcast. Sorry, podcast started and um, and I think this is going to be an amazing story. So uh, Carrie, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Jay. Um, in regards to the long fancy name, um, we, uh, in Cree, it means dark haired, which is what Carrie means. Okay. So, uh, it's Irish actually, Carrie, um, spelled like a boy, but it's called Kaskatu Wistaquan, and that means dark haired in Cree. Kaskatu Wistaquan. Wistaquan. Yeah. Wistaquan. And it's, um, the last name is Apunachau. Okay. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's also Cree, and it means um, iron body, which um, I guess I could just go into my story, like a little bit of my background for you then. Uh, Carrie, if you're ready, tell us your story. I sure will. Um, I thank you for being here. I'm forever grateful um, to be sober. I'm very happy. Um, I come from the Apunachau Seer family. My dad's a seer. Uh, from Gordon's First Nations. Um, It was home to a residential school that only went down in 1996, I believe. And my mother was an Apunachau, and she was also, her name was Clara Apunachau, and she is a residential school survivor. She also went to um, Gordon's residential school. Um, My great-great Mushum, or grandpa, was Iron Body. He was one of the eight warriors hung in, in Canada's largest mass hanging. Um, he was, I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud of my background. A little that I know was that once um, the warriors had been hung, the, the, their wives, the families had been chased like kind of in exile, right? So they went down to Montana where we know Rocky Boy Reserve and a couple of uh, one more of them was made out there by the remnants of this um, 1885 rebellion, as it was known as. And 
then my great-great-grandmother um, came to James Smith Cree Nation um, by Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and she bore the first Dapunachow. So that is my background. Um, we are descendants from Big Bear, and I am from the Brown Bear clan, huh. and very vicious, and... Uh, a lot of similarities to the bear now that I actually know who I am. Right. So it's very exciting to know my history. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So it's um, a bit of about like, myself. So that's pretty cool to hear, you know, wow. Yeah. It's like um, some indigenous royalty is how I describe myself. <laughs> um, I know that some of um, my auntie Linda Apunichow, if you look her up, she was an Indian princess back oh, in wow. the day. Um, I'm named after her, and she was present at my birth with my mother. Nice. Oh, so, okay. a little bit of background on them. Very proud women. Um, I carry that prideness. I carry that pride mm -hmm. um, to this day. So, um, I was adopted um, and lost from my biological family at two and a half years. I was adopted out. I first discovered what I thought family was. Um, it began when um, I living, I was adopted and I went to live at a farm out by Lorburn, Saskatchewan. And the grandmother there was loving. My grandma was loving and kind. My adopted grandmother was so awesome. She had cows, she had a dog, she had a cat, she had chickens, she had a huge garden. She taught me everything about country living. Um, and she was so super good to me. Um, she knew, well, um, the family that I was adopted to knew, I was abused in many ways, um, right since I was a baby. Mm -hmm. So being in that safe, loving environment was ideal for me, and I loved it there. But then um, her, her son, who had adopted me, uh, moved me to a small town, another small town in Saskatchewan, um, my adopted home would then prove to be hell. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. My young childhood was a recollection of preaching, meetings in the Kingdom Hall, and then behind closed doors in their home was my living hell. Yeah. I, had, I had to clean my adopted mom's home. I recall having a rag in my hand a lot, Dishes, dusting, and discipline. Yeah. I couldn't even wash my clothes with theirs. I had to hand wash my own undergarments and scrub my socks at four years of age. Oh, wow. At five, a horror story that never left my memory. I was suffering with bathroom issues. Mm -hmm. I had soiled myself, and the mother stormed into the bathroom, and I was trying to clean up the mess because I knew I was going to be in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. She ran a completely ice-cold tub and threw me into it. She called me names. She hit me anywhere, and I remember she held me under the water, and everything went black. Yeah. I came to on a small rug in the bathroom that she had. I was shivering and cold and hurt ashamed and she threw me out of the bathroom and then hit me as I was descending to the basement where she had told me to go to my room right um as long as I lived with that family I lived in the basement oh. 
I was punished endlessly and disciplined. I did not realize until I stopped drinking. I had not only suffered sexual abuse before this home, I had also endured it in the adopted home from this mother. Oh, wow. That day remains closed in my mind. I rarely go there. Um, I've had to go into um, like counseling for it. Yeah. And it's um, just something that I would never bestow on my own kids. Yeah. I swore as um, as soon as I became a parent that I would never be that woman. Right. And another example of abuse I went through was um, I recall that I used to like play with cars and drag myself around in the dirt quite a bit when I was about it was I was about 10 and I remember that she had um, brought me inside and showed me a hole in my pants she was doing laundry or something and she showed me this hole in my pants and my knees and she then took her sewing she was a sewer and she took her sewing pins and she stuck them through my knees oh wow Um and then and then made me walk around in the dirt on my knees it was kind of like she was teaching me a lesson yeah. But to this day, um, my knees hurt. I still have pain from that. So um, it's just an example of some of the things that I endured in the home. Yeah. So when I finally was emancipated at 15, I didn't, uh, um, I was done. I was done in that home. I was shoplifting anything. Like I was doing a whole bunch of stuff just to get attention. Right. Um, I went through a stage in school where no one liked me, like right from elementary school for the color of my skin. Yeah. And that continued into high school. And I was going through abuse in the home as well. And I wished for death. And I tried to run away a few times. Another reason I suffered was for the way they dressed me. So the kids were kids are harsh. Right. And so they were, of you know making fun of me in school and stuff. And, and the amount of um, the little amount of freedom I had um, was another reason, a factor in me not having friends. I was not allowed to have friends over. And I was told numerous years to not t talk about the inside of our home, like what was going on inside there. I was warned or else I'd come home to like, uh, you know, being spanked, I guess you could say. Um, but my adopted father was away lots. So the abuse must have been obvious to him and the rest of the family because she tried to hide it, right? She was, she was this loving, well-dressed woman in society, right? So no one really suspected that of her until I started speaking out about it. Um, so then my adopted father actually retaliated and mistreated his own children. There was, I had a brother and sister in that home. So there was like a lot of emotional abuse occurring in there. Wow. So the final blow was when she tried to hit me right on my back. I was about 15 and I grabbed her and I pushed her and she told my father, I tried to push her down the stairs. Like I was defending myself. Right. Cause I didn't want to get hurt anymore. So I ran away from school after school and I left to a friend's house and I went drinking that night. That was that was the first night I ever went drinking. Um, I liked the way I felt, you know, powerful, not sad. I then phoned a family friend, not associated with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I asked if I could stay there until I established myself. And I stayed there about a year. 
Um, and I am still in contact with her. I have deep appreciation because up to that point at 15, I had never celebrated Christmas, my birthdays, oh. any holiday. Um, it was all pagan to them. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they could hide abuse and stuff within their own religion, but everything else was just horrible. So it was, it's really hard when you're that age to fit in. And it was thus even harder with everything going on for me. Right. So by moving into Karen's, I had um, this family friend. I realized that all families were not that bad. So I then, after that, I moved to a larger city, uh, Saskatoon. Um, One day I learned who my biological family was. My adopted father had taken me to social services because it was a closed adoption. Right. So then they released some paperwork that they had on me. Um, and then we went to FSIN because we had her name, uh, my mother's name. Um, it was a culture shock to me, you guys. Um, this whole time, I thought I was white. Okay. Um, oh. I had no idea I was First Nations and that right. I belonged to other people. Oh. So my adopted dad... Like, like I said, took me to social services and then we went to FSIN and uh, we asked who my family was with this name, right? Yeah. And here I found out that day that my I was from James Smith Cree Nation and that my mother was living in Saskatoon as well, where oh, I was. Wow. Yeah. So um, we did meet. It wasn't a storybook meeting. Right. She was an alcoholic. Yeah. What I didn't know was that she was also, like I had said before, a residential school survivor. Yeah. So I went around with this ugly feeling that she lost me because she was a drunk. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's what was in my head. But little did I know. Right. So I slowly fell down that same rabbit hole. I drank when I could. I experimented with the harder drugs. I smoked weed and cigarettes like crazy. I became involved with my first boyfriend um, at 16, I think. And I started a life of poverty and alcoholic binges. We stole, we did break and enters and we scammed. Um, It was an endless addiction to whatever I could harm myself with. Yeah. So, and I went through a lot in that relationship. Uh, He cheated on me. He told me to drop out of school. And then later when we actually broke up that I'd never get my education, I was dumb and my two kids would be a prostitute and my son would be her John, stuff like that. He emotionally abused me. um, And the final straw was when he assaulted me while I was pregnant. He held my face to a frying pan and said that he would fry my face like a pork chop. And then he let his own sister um, attack me. When I was pregnant with our daughter, that's my second child, she said she would kick the Indian kid out of me and drag me around the yard by my hair while insulting me with uh, racial slurs. So I charged her. And that was my first introduction to actually using the legal system against someone else, right? So, um, and then the thing was that my ex allowed her to dominate our family, like our life. And I lived in constant fear of them. Mm-hmm. So I moved to another town with this guy uh, where I endured a horrible car accident due to his brother drinking and driving. 
I was also drinking, but I ended up saving his life. I had to run a few miles um, in Swift Current. There's a highway going, I think it's west. And I had to run down that highway in the middle of the night. And I had to go back to my house. It was about two miles. I called 911 and I sent EMS and police and whatever out to the highway. And I ran back and still had the time to cover him. And like I located his body. It was like a few feet away from the car. He had gone through my window and um, he is now paralyzed, but he still drinks. So it's a sad story how that ended. Um, And another trigger for me uh, for like, you know, for killing the pain um, was I lost my firstborn when I was about, this is before our daughter. So I was probably 17. Um, My firstborn son died from SIDS. Um, I found him in the crib. He was blue. Um, I had to call 911 and I couldn't bring him back. Cause like he was already stiff and he was cold. So he had passed away during the night. So I had to, yeah, I had to phone 911 and then they were accusing us that we killed him. And there was a police investigation. And meanwhile, I just wanted to just die, you know, like who loses their first son, you know, and it was so triggering to me. Um, and this was my life. I thought this was what life really was, you know. Um, your norm. When we, when we split, it was anger on both sides. By then, I had started using hard drugs and not knowing like why I was using. I knew they were. I knew they were bad. You know, like I I knew it was wrong. And I and I think it was from all the pain that I hadn't dealt with. So then um, my ex then kidnapped our baby girl. Uh, She was six and he left me. He kidnapped her from school and I didn't see her from the age of six to 14. Oh, I barely saw her. Like, I think I seen her like a week in eight years. Yeah. Like all together. So he just kept her from me after all this. Um, I'm happy to say that at 14, she left him because of his abuse. She realized too, that I wasn't lying all the stuff that he lied to her about that. I was a donkey and a loser and whatever else he called me, um, that it was actually him that was the harmful one. So she came back to me and she's been, uh, my baby girl since, and she's, we, um, I'm proud to say that I will be the grandmother to my first granddaughter in June. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm so happy. And she's already named her. And um my grand I have two grandsons with from her as well. And they are my pride and joy. And just I protect them like so viciously, like maybe even more so than my own children. So I think a lot of that has to do with just the loss of of her. So it's kind of like the creator gave me um even more to love because that I suffered so hard. Right. So I think that looking at that in a good light, despite the loss is, um, I think it's just a blessing and I'm very grateful. So, and another thing, um, he would use Christmas, you know, the holidays where he'd say, okay, you can have her. And then, 
he would call child protective services on me because our family all drank. Right. And he would send the cops into the house and try to get the kids removed and stuff. And this was like ongoing for years. He got my child tax taken away because he said I was scamming the government. I mean, I've lived in hell because of my first my first boyfriend ever. <laughs> like I wasn't a person that was allowed to date in that religion. So I wasn't out there being promiscuous and running around with everyone. And to right. this day, I've only had actually two partners in my life that I've lived with and that I've had children with. So it's not like I go around trying to date and I don't want that. It's uh, scary as the crap out of me. So, um, so anyways, um, I just, I'm very happy that I have her, um, in, in my life. So I lived in hell, I guess, basically for all those years. Um, it was like, she had died to me. So of course I went into, drinking like crazy but i still love my third child that i had it was not um her dad the dad's son i had gone to school with him um when i was getting my education and um uh, we had a beautiful baby boy i called him saul and he was actually um his dad ended up being addicted to drugs and he was murdered in uh, by the police in Saskatoon when my son was about five years old um they shot him in his in the house and um it's I don't know it was the drugs so yeah um so anyways during all of this I had the support of my real father whom I had met he helped right. me, um, but we also drank. It was kind of like the normal thing to do, uh, just party, party, party on the weekends. Um, he was a city of Regina worker and very proud man, very proud to work. And, you know, um, not at all. I mean, he was from the reserve, right? And he had gone through residential school. But the thing was, he did not let that get him, you know, kind of a deal. But he did keep it all inside by drinking, right? which is what a lot of guys do is they don't speak about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for guys telling me exactly how it is. Not don't sugarcoat it. Don't beat around the bush. Please tell me exactly what's going on here. And you get, you get a lot more accomplished that way than you do hiding and tiptoeing around the way I've witnessed my family doing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I chose to not um, parent like that. So, um, the tragedy happened though with my dad and um we lost my younger brother pierre at age he was 15 he rolled his truck and drowned in a ditch not far from dad's on the reserve he was drinking and driving and it was devastating uh not just to the family but especially to my dad and i also lost my dad i believe when our my little brother died yeah. I hate alcohol um, and what it takes away from us. And like, it's our families, right? And that's what it takes away. Um, I was at home one day. This is where things kind of get lighter. Um, there was a knock at my front door. I opened it and there was Errol Canistino from North of 60. It's a Canadian uh, popular Canadian Indigenous show 
Uh, they were running it on CBC, I think. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. And he asked if their show could possibly use my graffiti on my garage for the show. It said That's hood, cool. and it was like all like gang styled up and everything. Like mm-hmm. I was running around with gangsters and stuff. Um, so I was like, sure, you know, like do it up. And I was like, is there any possible way that like I could? Like, is there any work or something? Or do you guys have any background? Or you need actors? I want to be acting. You know, like, everyone wants to be an actor. Right. And I was like, um, what happened was that he gave me the location, and I showed up, and I was hired as an accountant trainee um, for a show called Moccasin Flats. Um, it, the showrunners were Jennifer Pademski and Laura, Laura Milliken. Um, and they gave me my first shot in the business. Um, I was also voted Miss Congeniality and I was also known as the check lady. (laughs) So uh, of course they all liked me. Um, it wasn't really my choice to get into the accounting, but the showrunners put me where they see, you know, they see me. Um, so it was a good experience and I was also, um surprisingly i got two background parts on that one was in a club which i loved i got to dance with um some some kind of the famous more famous indigenous actors at the time um and then i was party girl (laughs) which is so funny because i was also party girl for real on the set and everyone knew where to come to the you know after after work to come and have a drink and you know hang out so um they didn't really encourage sobriety so and we're all youth we were supposed to be sober so um anyways that was my first shot and i did i did manage to complete the season of mocks and flats ironically the show is about getting out of the hood well so now let's fast forward to 2019 okay that was about two years into my sobriety the last draw for me was, um, like I said, my I had mentioned previously, um, Guns N' Roses 2017 is my uh, sobriety date mm-hmm. in Rajan. <laughs> cool. So um, where I had really wanted to go party and stuff at this concert, I ended up working there <laughs> and I got to see the show. So it was another great op in my life. And mm-hmm. I realized that the more... Um, opportunities that I asked for were being given to me mm-hmm. and the more sober I stayed that more of these doorways were just like popping open so I was about yeah like I said it was about two years so um I lost a lot of people to drinking and driving yeah. and I think the last draw for me was the fact that that was we thought that that was our main coping mechanism in our lives or my life since I was young. Like no one taught me anything else. Like no one, you know, I was on the street since I was 15 emancipated. Like who's going to teach me anything about life. Yeah. You're just learning as the on the go, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, through a lot of mistakes, mind you. (laughs) So, um, so when I was ready to deal with the abuse the pain, the sadness. I realized I was feeling alone, you know, even when I was drunk and sitting there with people, 
uh, I realized I was not enjoying drinking. I was blacking out. I was crying around all the time. I was ending up in jail. I was making majorly bad decisions. Um, we had also been selling drugs um, and we had been rushed by the gangs, well, um, rival gangs um, that wanted our stuff. So they would kick our door in, um, blast the windows out. They held a shotgun to my now, my husband, that is now my husband, um, to his head. And my little daughter was home, our littlest, our youngest one. And um, so I hit her in the bathroom and um, I told her to be quiet. She was like two. And I told her, you know, shh, I told her and she was really good. She was really good baby. And she listened. Right. Mm -hmm. And they beat the crap out of him. My husband uh, threatened his life. They stole money off of us, smashed up our house. They stole electronics. My oldest son's hat collection that he worked for because I was teaching him. Like they hated me drinking. Yeah. I was teaching him. You have to make some money for yourself. I can't do it all for us. I don't have the money to give you the nice things you want. So maybe you could learn to work. Like he was in grade 11. Right. And I just thought I'd teach him some life skills. And um, here they had gone and stole his stuff. And it was so disappointing. Right. Like that was just a blow to us all. Like it was a serious, like dummy up, you know? So, um, I felt like after I went to jail, I went to jail um, for some petty stuff. I'm not sure what it was, but that's when I really woke up. Um, The next day I felt so ashamed. It was like, there was a light going off. My baby was like two and I had missed her so much. And so I knew I let her down. I let my son down. I let my whole family down. And at that time I was selling um, or no, I was um, seeing things. Like um, when I'd sober up and the next day, like uh, DTs or like I would, um, and I seen um, my, I woke up and the room was extremely ice cold and the bed there around the bed, there was like all these things looking at me and there was like, there were like shadows and there was just a whole bunch of them. And I'm not sure if those are DTs or what, but I just got up and I went like tearing through that and I went outside in the warm, warm sun. It was summertime, I think. And I went outside and um, that's when I, I prayed so hard because I was so afraid. Um, and I asked our creator to help me. Um, that day I asked him, I said straight up, like, if I quit drinking and drugging, can you give me something that will fill my days other than my family, other than, you know, like I was asking beyond what I could handle because I'd already done a good job with my family. Like my kids had graduated from school. I have two um, grown kids. One's 21, one's 23. Um, And I just asked for something better. You know, I was just like wishing and wishing. I was like, can I please have another shot at life? Like I'm in my thirties. I was in my thirties at the time, you know, like I felt like I had already lost life you know mm-hmm. so i then went to um two two aa meetings just two i found them to be repetitive and preachy and because i barely had any faith right like after being in that religion i did not 
I did not reach out to any religion, any belief. I had nothing going on with me, right? Yeah. So me asking the creator was me getting my faith back. And what is some of the steps in AA is that we have to have faith. We have to believe in that higher power, right? Right. So I remained sober. Um, did my life improve? I would say drastically because first off, truth was faced when I became sober. And at first, it's really embarrassing, right? It'll make you... I seen a video of myself hammered out and hanging onto this bench. Like I was sitting on a bench with three good legs and one of the legs was busted off and I was still sitting on that side somehow with my drink balancing. Yeah. And when I seen myself talking and slurring around uh, and my kids gave me this video and I was so embarrassed. I was like, that's me. I was like, this is how you see me when I'm doing this. And it made me, it was like a slap to my face. And I realized that truth was like the way I was acting was selfish. And I was not only selfish to my kids, but to my whole family and ignorant as well. And so I realized I had so much to live cleanly for and that I still had life and life to give. And like I said, I was embarrassed that I had to show my loved ones that I was sorry. Right. So I started apologizing to my family. That was some of my first steps. And like, I got some really weird reactions, like what for, you know, like it was all a normal thing that I had taught them. And (laughs) so when they started realizing not everyone goes through this, Oh, I don't have to hide around because my mom's drunk. Like, like now my mom's sober you can come over it's cool you know and and life changed it started opening up the doors for my family mm-hmm. so i realized that um the person inside of me still existed but there was all these like um open sores everywhere you know so i had to start like healing those sores so i began speaking out for my stolen sisters. I have to relate an incident that happened to me while I was drinking. This happened in about 2016. Okay. About a year before I quit drinking. It was also a trigger to me. Um, I had gone to my niece's house in Regina. She lived on a good part of the city, right? Not in the hood or nothing. Um, it was about three in the morning. I had um asked for a cab ride home and uh the cab came right circled around i'm actually writing a um like a short movie about this i call it lost bear um and i'm going to get it um we're going to probably shoot it by this summer but yeah so um Anyways, so this cab came and um, we started going home. I got in the front seat and I never do that. Like when I'm sober, I'm always in the back seat. I've always been scared of, I don't know, being stolen, like being taken. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It's always been a thing with me. 
And um, I've always carried straps with me, I guess, maybe just the lifestyle I led. But um, that night I didn't have one and I was intoxicated. Like, um, so when I got in, I remember I was just staring at the floor, minding my own. It was, um, it was the middle of winter. I can remember that much. And so we, we started going like down, um, down this one road and then we hit the freeway and then you go towards the hood where I was living. Um, you're supposed to turn left. And first he missed the first turn off, then he missed another turn off. And then all of a sudden we're not even in my area. Right. So, um, and I know I said, Hey guy, we're like, where are you taking me? I was like, we're not, this is not my way home. And he was, um, silent. Like he didn't say nothing to me. He was ignoring me. Um, and then I told him, Hey, I said, you're not, I said, where are you taking me? And at that point, that's when I kind of like snapped out of that drunken stage. And then I started having like actual fearful thoughts. I was like, what is going on? Um, I'm in danger. Right. And I told him, you got to take me home. And he just, um, he said, look, there's your home, right? We're still on the freeway. And he's like, look, there's your home. And I turned to look and I was like, no, this isn't. And he's just like smashed me right in the side of my temple on my left side of my head. And um, he hit me again. And like he was trying to knock me out. <laughs> and I was like, it's going to take a lot more than that, buddy. I told him or something about like that. And I was screaming at him, like, what the F are you doing? And um, by that time, I started, like, freaking out. And I was like, hey, you have to take me home. I said, these people know that I'm gone from their home. My husband called this cab, and he wants me home. He knows. He he said, nope. That guy told me, nope, no one will miss you. He goes, no one is going to miss you. And he was trying to, I guess, just really break my spirit, like make me, make me as hurt as he could. Um, we had turned off to the airport road in Regina and um, I, you know what? I decided at that point that I wasn't going to go anywhere with anybody and my street senses kicked in. Sobriety picked up a little bit and I grabbed the steering wheel and I was like, I'd rather die, you know, yeah. like crashing the car that I would go with this fool. So um, I started like grabbing the steering wheel and he was trying to like beat my arms and stuff so that I wouldn't touch uh, the steering wheel, but I still did it. And I was like pushing his face and trying to scratch him and like fight him. And the car did um, like the car went all over the road and then he stopped. Right. And he must've figured like, Holy crap, if she's going to give me this much trouble, I better just take her home. So he took me home. And um, I still had to pay for that cab. (laughs) And I got out of the cab and I'm just like crying. And my husband like um, just thought I was just, you know, being a drunk and crying. And he didn't realize until I sobered up the next day what had happened. Right. And um, I reported it to the police and they, the first question they had asked me was, was I drunk? Right. So I hung up the phone. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> I also tried to report it to the cab company. And they told me that they erase their meters or they erase the, like, who phones in. So they had erased it. And there was no record of who was driving that night. 
no, why would I? So they're full of shit. Yeah. And so, so I've been telling this story. This is when I finally got like the gonads to start speaking out. I was like, you know what? This is, this is BS. I was like, is this happening to other people? And then that kind of opened my eyes up to the MMIW, MMIP, um, that there was better things than gangs to hang out with. And that the gangs are probably some of the reasons that our sisters and brothers were going missing. And I spoke at my first rally um, for the missing and murdered. Uh, I think it was in 2020. And I related my story. I was scared. I was so scared to tell people this because I thought, you know, no one's going to believe me because like the cops didn't even believe me. And but that day I called out the cops in front of the legislative building in Regina. And I said that they needed to start um, actually caring about where we were going and the stories that we were trying to tell them that they shouldn't be judging us whether or not we're drinking. I said, I did take a cab home for my own safety. I said, like, how was this not? And it was never, ever looked into, like, ever. So I realized then that we needed to start um, speaking up more for our lost brothers and sisters. And that is... um, one of my activism goals is to, I'm, I'm never going to stop speaking about this until I pass away. So. Until you're heard. Yeah, I was heard. And um, I think by telling my story, I have helped others mm-hmm. and that I still want to help others. And I just want to realize that I guess people do give you a chance, right? Like they really do listen to you once you start speaking. And uh, after that rally, they came up to me and they thanked me for telling my story. And then I began writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, that's, I think that was when the light bulb moment went off. And I realized that that was my calling um, to publicly speak, to um, be an activist. So when I was, I think it was in 20, when did, okay. So uh, in Regina, um, in the park there, in Victoria Park, there's um, a John A. McDonald statue. Right. And um, when I was, I decided that because I learned my history about my grandfather being hung, uh, um, it was actually under the order of John A. McDonald. Mm-hmm. And I decided that because he was the instigator behind all of that, and that he started making the restrictions on the First Nations people of Canada. And that um, that's when all like the past system came in where we actually had no freedom. Um, also, when we went to like, um, there, there's so much things from this story that I just, I could just go on. But the main part was that he started residential schools. Right. And I would, I didn't want to have that bs sitting in the middle of my hometown um where people walk by it all the time so i started rallying i stayed at the statue for two weeks i had written up a former i had written up a formal petition um i received like 2500 signatures and I then went to the city and we had a meeting. I had the backing of the University of Regina and then I had um, the arts community back me up. I had the health community back me up. I had 
um, the city of Regina's attention. And not only one mayor, but two mayors, because the one mayor finished his term and then the next one came in. And she was the one that finally agreed to get that statue removed. She gave me permission and they took it down. And that was a victory for me because yeah. of the pain that he caused right. my family and many to many families. That's, so, yeah. oh, sorry. No, oh, go yeah, ahead. I was, I was just going to say like one of the really sad thing that you said during, during this was that your, your mother was a, a resident school survivor, which yeah. is, which is like one of those things you like, would never have heard a couple of years ago as far as it might be my ignorance but i i never heard anything poorly about resident schools until until recently when they since they found like um a whole bunch of bodies out in bc and they continue to find them all over canada never mind yeah and my mom um she wouldn't have made it either um she was raped in the school she 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 said a few things to me while she drank and she said that um, they should have the same um, heroism that our war veterans have because they suffered not only for Canada, they suffered in silence. They suffered for their own brothers and sisters. A lot of them took, a lot of the older siblings took uh, the abuses from the nuns and the, the priests um, in there for their younger siblings. Yeah. She was one of them and uh, she suffered horribly. She said that there was um, girls having babies and they would just take that baby and chuck it. You, you wouldn't know where the baby went. And then the girl would be sitting in class on Monday. So That's terrible. And uh, yeah. under Gordon's, they found baby bodies while they're excavating the site and uh, tearing it down. Yeah. And uh, when I when we go there, there's um, they have the old gym there, and you go and uh, we have our wakes and our memorials and our funerals there, and you can hear those babies like you can hear kids like running and laughing. Uh, it gives me the chills to say that because they're still there. Those yeah. those little babies are still there. Yeah. And um, also, my father was in residential school. Um, and uh, my three uncles and then my like i had said my mom and her sisters and brothers were all in there and not one of them talk about it to this day it's yeah. just too hard for them so and then another term i learned from all of this was that i am an intergenerational survivor mm-hmm. because i was scooped from my mother as well she was taken from her mother and my daughter was taken from me. So like people tell us to get over it and that hurt the most. You should hear how I tell them off. It's, it's not at all in this calm voice. (laughs) Um, So, so Carrie, how how long are you sober now? Sober and clean, if you don't mind me asking. Um, uh, Off of um, hard drugs. It's been about seven years um, it's been since 2017. I've been sober. Since Guns and Roses, yeah. <laughs> Guns and Roses, and then um, I recently just quit smoking weed, which was a big one. <laughs> um, I quit smoking numerous times. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's um, I'm always 
like if something horrible happens at least it's just a cigarette now it's not like the bottle of vodka or the cooler mm-hmm. or whatever else i have to go so, out and grab so so when you say recently you don't mean like an hour ago <laughs> no uh <laughs> recently for weed it's been about a week oh yeah that's good yeah, it's been actually, it's um really good. My lungs are doing a lot better. Um, I'm happy now. I was really grouchy for a while the first few days. Um, I slept lots. Mm-hmm. And um, like a lot of people don't think that that is a problem, but it is. It's right. actually expensive yeah. and it's a crutch. Yeah. Right, right. No. So... I recommend anyone to quit smoking that and you're going to have a lot more money in your pocket as well. Yeah. And you might get healthy. I don't know. I, I never think about the health part. I usually just think about the money and because I've been poor my whole life. Right. So right. poverty has made me um, become a workaholic and like, because I, I filled all my hours before with drinking or drugging or getting those, acquiring them. Now it's making sure that I have food and like my biggest fear is not having a home to, to live in or food to eat for my family. Yeah. Um, just normal stuff, you know? And I, I find, I don't know how we'd be doing it if I was hammered out. Like, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I just like to say that I got, um, my last chance um (laughs) i've gotten a lot of them it seems since i've asked a creator um this year i am gonna return to secret history of the wild west season two i will be working as a production coordinator trainee wow um yeah my boss is julian black antelope um about it's been about okay when was it 2019 so 2018 I was like, you know, like, holy crap, this guy's awesome. Like, I was wondering, who is this guy? Um, He's on Hold the Dark. If you guys want to watch my boss's movie, that just caught my eye. It was Hold the Dark. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on Netflix. But his name is um, Julian Black Antelope. And this is um, my mentor to this day. Um, I reached out to him actually on Facebook, like, um i was just sitting there going i was like you're so amazing this is my favorite movie blah 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 i was being starstruck and i um he answered me i was like i'm sober i was like if you ever need like you know you ever need a crew member or something just ask me and he's like oh i'd love that i'd love it and he um messaged me his email and I was then offered a position as a trainee in 2019 for APTN um, for Secret History One. And it was uh, about the um, heroes of the West, like unheard of heroes. Really? So if you go and watch this show, it's like um, they're indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. And he's very, um, I even had it written into my um, contract that I was to stay sober. Wow. Um, and I managed to do that. I finished uh, the first season and I also was offered um, a part where I got to be in the second episode with um, a well-known indigenous, actually two well-known indigenous actors. And one's the model. Um, her name is Michaela Shannon. 
Okay. And then there was um, Eugene. Um, oh, my God, I've forgotten his name. I just known him as Gene. <laughs> and uh, he was originally in the first Wonder Woman with oh, Gal wow. Gadot. Yeah. So um, he, he played, um, oh, my God, Chief. So he's in that episode. He's a star in the episode I was in. And I had no idea who he was. And then he signed me a picture and he, and here he is standing with Wonder Woman. And I'm like, Oh, what wow. the heck? <laughs> yeah. So that was my first shot on screen. My first huge shot on screen. And, um, I was then offered second season, like I said, to wait around. So I finally moved out to Calgary last August and, um, started out with the TV on the floor the inflatable mattress right. <laughs> and I built my home up again. So it's quite a comfy little home and my little mess. And um, I have a beautiful home. Um, I'm not surrounded by gangs. I don't look over my shoulder anymore. I don't like, you know, in fear, I, I don't even carry a knife. I don't carry anything with me anymore. Yeah. Um, there's no gangs like, where I am there's I've detached myself from that life so I don't have to live scared anymore yeah. and the thing is you think it, that they're your friends you know when you're all down with them but they're just yeah. a bunch of jealous guys that are lost jealous women that are lost and a lot of them have some major problems like I mentioned they're they are behind the drug scene they are the ones pushing them on our people which is extremely sad. And um, I still pray for all of them that, you know, there'll be some light before they lose their light kind of a deal because Regina is so sad. That city needs to be pulled out of the depths of despair because that is all I witness, not just in some areas, just everywhere. Um, Math has taken over our people and, it is the the new epidemic. It's not very new, I guess. I shouldn't say it's new, but it is the epidemic of our people. And there needs to be a lot of work done um, in that city, probably everywhere. But I just relate to Regina because it's... That's where you're from, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I had mentioned that I do wreath making. We started uh, making Dreamcatcher wreaths. My husband does the weaving <laughs> And I'll do all the flower. I'll go buy the flowers and pick out the forms. And it all started because the youth out there were losing their friends and family. And they didn't have a lot of money, you know, but they wanted something nice to bury their loved ones with. So I started, you know, collecting flowers and buying them. And I would just give these young, the youth, really good deals. Like, um, so they could have that for their families and um, I donated wreaths to the Camp Justice out there that was there for 100 and I think it was 43 days. Um, I made allies there at the camp. Uh, they're all still my friends to this day. Um, being an activist, I really stand up for our missing and murdered. I stand up for Every Child Matters. Um, I'm actively involved with our 60 Scoop group called the Legacy, the 60 Scoop Legacy of Canada. I sit on a board. I am a founding members uh, with two other of my sisters. 
Um, just that we advocate for all of our lost kids. We still call ourselves children because um, we know that our parents lost us and we never really grew up. We only just kind of floated along and now we all just kind of hold each other's hands because we still feel lost in society. Like we kind of fence sitting, but I say that being a 60 scoop survivor has made me stronger in both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how to, um, I use education against these people that want to hate on us and, um, you know, call us down and call us names. I use that education that they forced on me against them. Mm-hmm. And I use my research knowledge. I use my smarts to um, like to get the statue taken down. Right. They wanted um, the other rebels wanted to just tear it down. And I'm like, there's, there's a better way than just using um, destruction, which I'm not for violence. I'm, I hate it. I hate like any criminal activity. Um, and I advocate for uh, the right way to deal with government authorities and the police and the welfare system. Mm-hmm. So um, being an advocate and a strong one, my friends regularly uh, refer to me as their strong advocate sister. And I'm uh, very proud of the work that I do. Um, recently, I was asked to be a narrator. Um, so I finally got paid for talking, talking, talking. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so they really, gave me... Um, see, this is, all, this is all stuff that never could have happened unless you got sober for the most part, right? Exactly. You, I think you might have found your calling for the most part. It's been an incredible yeah. story, Carrie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having yes, me. Yes, thank you, Carrie. Yeah, this is pr- pretty amazing. You've really uh, overcome a lot of um, uh, stuff, especially from your childhood, and uh, to to hear how how you've progressed uh, since since Guns and Roses, <laughs> since you're welcome <laughs> to the jungle. That's been yeah, quite, quite amazing. I love it. I love um, telling the story, and I plan to never stop. Awesome, awesome. Thanks again, Carrie. It's so nice meeting you. Um, we'll chat for a little uh, after I end this, which will be in a couple seconds. And I just want sure. to thank everyone who continues to listen or listens. Just hit the follow button and give us a rating. Uh, if it's under five stars, then don't give us a rating. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, now a word from our sponsors. I'm just kidding. We don't have any. <laughs>